I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with leading authors and public figures. Today, I'm interviewing New York Times White House correspondent Peter Baker and his wife, Susan Glasser, who's a staff writer for The New Yorker, about their fantastic new book, The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker which came out on September 29, 2020. We did the virtual interview as a program for the Greater Dallas Regional Chamber on October 26th. Enjoy. And Susan, I know you've been uh, promoting this book for a long, long time now, <laughs> done dozens, if not hundreds of virtual programs. So we're so glad that you'd uh, give an hour for the Dallas Regional Chamber. But getting straight to the book, here is this wonderful book uh, that came out a few weeks ago, The Man Who Ran Washington. And so Peter and Susan, James Baker left Washington, D.C. almost 20 years ago. Yours is the first biography of him. So why did it take historians so long (laughs) to pick up on his historic impact? Well, that's a great question. Well, Thomas, first of all, thank you very much for doing this. As always, you're uh, a wonderful supporter of, of authors and history and current events, and we're delighted to be with you. We're delighted to be with the Dallas Regional Chamber of Commerce. Thank you, John, and thank you, Dale, uh, for hosting us and for making this a special treat. We wish we could be there in person. One of the things we were really excited about for this book tour was getting a chance to spend some time in Texas and Dallas and especially. And it's uh, it's a shame that we're not able to. But um, why did it take so long for people to pick up on Baker? I think that's a good question. I think because in some ways he is not um, flamboyant or, you know, incendiary, right? He doesn't throw bombs in the middle of the political dialogue. He's not kind of uh, out there. And I think that because he is a responsible actor, people kind of overlooked him in some ways. They, they gravitated toward the bigger-than-life celebrity characters of history without recognizing, I think, what an incredibly important role he played and how many events he played such a role in, from all the way from the end of Watergate to the end of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Now, although uh, Secretary Baker cooperated with you uh, in the research of the book and opened up his contacts, opened up his files, et cetera, et cetera, he had no editorial control over it. And thus, your book is truly a warts and all biography. So after Secretary Baker read the final product, did he tell you of any parts of the book in which he disagreed with any of your assessments? You know, interesting. And thank you, Talmadge. I have to add my thanks to Peter's, uh, to all of you for hosting us today. It really, um, uh, it's it's such a delight to be able to talk with you. And you you mentioned my role these days is to write a weekly, uh, you know, letter from Washington for the New Yorker. So of course I'm eager for any excuse uh, not to have to pay attention even for an hour uh, to what's happening uh, today in Washington. And actually, in a way, this book was sort of an exercise in time travel for Peter and I. Not not in nostalgia, right? Uh, you know, we all know that uh, the U.S. of the '80s and the '90s and the '70s was a, a certainly a polarized and divisive political moment, uh, but there was a, a sense that the the rules of political combat occurred uh, within a framework uh, in which both parties, uh, you know, accepted the outcome, broadly speaking, accepted a shared national interest, accepted a shared set of facts. And of course, uh, that's something that we don't have today. So to get to your point about Secretary Baker, I mean, he comes very much out of this tradition of absolute fierce political combat in election years, but at the same time, uh, a sense that there is a need for history, capital H, to speak, uh, and that, uh, you know, warts and all is okay uh, if you've actually established a real record. Uh, Peter and I were certainly nervous. Jim Baker has a great and well-deserved reputation for very skillfully uh, managing the press, managing his own reputation. And I have to say that one of the, you know, sort of... uh, pleasures of working on this book for such a long time was seeing uh, and dealing with someone who was completely professional, uh, but also very forthcoming. We weren't really sure he's not a super 
you know, introspective guy. He didn't hand over, you know, years worth of diaries that, that show his innermost thoughts uh, to us or anything. And yet he, he did not try to micromanage this in any way. He absolutely understood that this was an independent book, uh, that it was also, uh, you know, a case study, if you will, in Washington and power and politics, not a celebration of it. Uh, I'm sure there are things in there that he doesn't like, but uh, he got a copy of the galley actually from, uh, not from us, because uh, the book was originally supposed to come out in May, but was postponed till September because of the coronavirus. So, you know, he's still very wired, even at the age of 90, he got a copy of the galley, you know, and we heard from uh, from his staff that, that, we, that he was gonna send us a few corrections after having read it. And, you know, what came back was just a very small list of, you know, at this moment, I think it was a shotgun, uh, you know, and not not a rifle that, that I was using in this, this hunting, things like that. Uh, you know, he has not tried in any way to kind of litigate this in, in, in a manner that we kind of expected he might. For what it's worth, I'm the one who sent him the galley. No, oh, the source, the leaker. All right, this is. I'm so glad we did this because we've been wondering about that. We'll forgive you, though. We we'll should have known. I, I got two copies of the galleys, and so I called John Williams, and he said, "Could you send one to us? We're dying to know what's in that book." Uh, Finally, we've cracked right, the real so source. The leak investigation has determined the uh, culprit. There you go. Now, now, both of you, of course, have been in Washington, covered politics for quite a while, grew up uh, during this uh, era when when Baker ran Washington. And so I assume each of you presumably had some preconceived ideas about James Baker before you took on the task of researching and writing the book. So did any of your preconceived ideas turn out to be wrong? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, look, I think we we did grow up knowing of Baker uh, more from a distance. We didn't really start covering that level of politics until later in our in our lifetime. We interacted with him, I think, over the years, off and on, as kind of like a you know whenever he would have something to say about modern day events. But we didn't have a relationship with him in a in a significant way until we started the book. Um, I think we just I think a lot of things we thought we knew were reinforced. He is everything that people think he is in a lot of ways, and then some. I mean, he is remarkably disciplined, remarkably uh, uh, capable, uh, remarkably professional, remarkably good at, 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 at charming reporters as well as uh, you know foreign potentates and politicians. Um, but I think what we learned about him that we didn't know was his history in Texas. I think we didn't really know the story of his upbringing in Houston with the, the sort of the aristocracy of the Baker family. We didn't know about the family tragedy, which is in the book about his first wife dying of cancer and how he confides in the only person that he could tell is George H.W. Bush. We didn't really, I think, fully understand the depth of that friendship until we knew more about that. So I think we learned more about him as a person uh, beyond, as Susan likes to put it, the dazzling res resume and the you know, the history markers that we all kind of knew going in. Well, as Susan said a minute ago, he's not what you'd call an introspective person. True. So how hard was it to try to get a read on his inner psyche? Yeah. Well, that is a challenge, uh, you know, and on the one hand, we had the benefit of having a subject who was engaged with us, who spent something like 70 hours in interviews with us. Uh, and I do think that was very valuable since we didn't cover him, uh, you know, when he was sort of at the commanding heights of Washington, just to see how his mind works, how he interacts. That that was extremely useful in giving us insights. And, you know, I, look, it was it was Baker who is still willing to talk about, uh, you know, his father uh, and the nickname that, that they gave his father as the warden, uh, him and his friends. You know, that that is a revealing thing. But I do think Peter and I benefited from also having uh, a paper trail as well. And, uh, you know, Baker is a bit of a pack rat. Uh, you know, he's also a lawyer and, and brings a lawyer's, you know, attachment to documents and creating a documentary record. That was very valuable for him to have given us access to his papers at, at Princeton University and also at Rice University at the Baker Institute, because, you know, you you see okay, he says, my dad was the nickname, the warden. He might not have told us, I don't think he did tell us, you know, a ton of stories uh, that are 
telling us how he felt as a young boy or as a young adult, but there's piles of uh, paperwork, there's files at Princeton that show how his father was micromanaging him even into his uh, young adulthood. You know, he's a lawyer uh, at a, a law firm, he's got a, a wife and children, uh, and yet his dad is sending him, you know, uh, short curt memos with uh, a check for twenty five dollars uh, to buy a, a suit from Brooks Brothers and to pay for the uh, housekeeper and to even buy his wife's Christmas present uh, and that kind of thing I think really supplemented uh, our understanding. We had access, for example, to uh, President Bush's George Herbert Walker Bush's uh, diary, uh, some of which had yet to be released uh, uh, in a way that was helpful in getting the real time. You know, some of those tensions these two are best friends on the one hand. On the other hand, that makes it even more fraught for them to be president and secretary of state and the, the delicacy with which, uh, you know, Bush was approaching uh, some of Baker's demands or his prickliness uh, about being interfered with. So, you know, that was a big challenge for us. Uh, but I, we were benefited, I think, by the secretary's full cooperation. Now, in your book's prologue, you quote Secretary Baker for the proposition, the point of holding power is to get things done, which he's acknowledged in recent interviews to be much more challenging today than when he ran Washington from 1980 to early 1993. So give us your thoughts as to whether Secretary Baker with his extraordinary skills could run Washington today with the same effectiveness that he had during the Reagan and Bush 41 presidencies? Yeah, it's a great question. And that's one of the things we really thought made this book different than just a biography of one man, right? Because it was a biography, I think, of Washington to a certain extent, a, a, a story about how Washington uh, worked in a certain era. And, it, and the contrast, of course, to today couldn't be more stark. You know, Baker, uh, as Susan put it, was a, you know, a, a, you know, a knife fighter, uh, at election times, but after it was done, he would sit down with Democrats to work out a deal. He sat with Democrats to work out a deal on Social Security in 1983 that put it on a firm financial footing for many years to come. That hasn't happened since. He sat down with the Democrats in 1986 to rewrite the entire tax code, top to bottom, with the Democrats. Again, hasn't happened since. With the Democrats again in 1989, he sat down, Jimmy Carter, Jim, Jim Wright, helped end the Contra War. And so what's changed today, I think, is the incentive structure. The incentive structure at that time rewarded compromise, it rewarded bipartisanship, it rewarded getting things done. And what Baker would tell us over and over again, was he was distraught about the way Washington had become, even before Trump came to town. We started this book in 2013 during uh, the dim recesses of the Obama era. It wasn't working very well all that well then either. And I think that he was distraught at the idea that people only cared about winning the election and that the governing was simply an exercise in getting to the next election rather than getting something done. And could Baker succeed in that environment? That's an excellent question. I, th I tend to think he's so canny and so uh, uh, clever that he might find a way to succeed even today, but it wouldn't be the same. It definitely was a marriage of man and moment. He had opportunities in front of him that played to his strengths and his particular skill set that we don't see today in Washington. Mm -hmm. Now, in the book, you note that during the Reagan presidency, uh, James Baker was sometimes referred to as the co-president mm -hmm. because of his high level of influence in the White House, though perhaps the most powerful person during those eight years in the White House was Reagan's wife, Nancy. So that being the case, describe the chemistry between James Baker and Nancy Reagan over the course of the Reagan presidency. Well, that's a good question because, uh, in fact, uh, Baker, uh, one of the reasons I think he was so successful for so long in so many different roles was having an excellent read of the, the power dynamics in any institution that he came into. Uh, and, uh, you know, you couldn't read that Reagan uh, 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 personal inner circle without understanding that Nancy Reagan uh, was a major figure in her own right. And uh, I think he correctly understood that she needed to be on his side from the very beginning. And he cultivated that. Uh, he was very critical uh, of his successor, Don Reagan. One of the things he told us, you know, was the stupidity of alienating uh, the first lady, uh, understanding and knowing what he knew. Uh, you know, Baker did not come into that Reagan world uh, with years of 
connections or background. He was not only an outsider, but he came in as someone who had won, who had run two different national campaigns against Ronald Reagan and yet to be invited for him to be Reagan's chief of staff was kind of an extraordinary thing. It's hard to imagine something like that happening uh, in, in this modern context. But, you know, he, it, even to this day, I think is still sort of seen as the gold standard of how do you uh, run a White House. Democrats as well as Republicans very much uh, both admire that and look to that as a model. Uh, but the real truth is that, you know, some of it is just like old fashioned good sense, like, you know, don't piss don't off the president's the wife. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, he, he tread gingerly too, I will say this. Uh, and, you know, that was one of the critiques that you know, followed him throughout his career as well, that he, you know, his instincts for self-preservation, let's say, were finely honed. Uh, he found out, for example, about Nancy Reagan's penchant for consulting an astrologer uh, and using that to influence the timing of White House events. One of his advisors told us she was shocked to find out about this, and Baker had never uh, told her. And basically, even when she did find out, he said, yeah, you go, go talk to somebody else about that. Essentially, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. In fact, didn't Nancy Reagan in her memoirs say that if James Baker had been White House chief of staff during Reagan's second term, there would not have been an Iran-Contra scandal? She did. She thought that the swap, in hindsight, with Don Reagan for the second term would have been one of the worst decisions that was made, one of the worst events that happened in her husband's presidency. She, she assumed, I think she's probably right, that Baker would never have tolerated uh, the sort of uh, off the books kind of uh, adventurism that the that happened under under uh, Reagan. Uh, she also look. She also saw him. She she you know uh, she also says in her memoir that there were times she felt that Jim Baker was out for Jim Baker. That's a common thing you often heard at times from people who felt like you know he, he had his own interests at heart. But she obviously felt strongly enough that he also had Reagan's interests at heart. That when she passed away, she had asked that he be the one to give at her funeral. So I think that tells you what you need to know about his relationship with Nancy Reagan. When she passed away, the one person she wanted to stand up for her was Jim Baker. Yeah. Now, of course, you talk about Baker, and naturally there's a whole focus, part of the book anyway, on George H.W. Bush. And one of the surprises in the book is the way you describe how that, uh, even though they were and always call themselves best friends and Baker described Bush as the big brother I never had. Their relationship, in fact, from time to time was very tense and rocky. Uh, both of them were ultra competitive alpha males. Uh, and at times that made uh, Barbara Bush uh, very uh, unhappy with Baker again on kind of the self-promotion side of him. What was the lowest point in their friendship and how did they get past it? Mm. Well, you know, that is a great question. Obviously, the Bush-Baker relationship is at the very heart, you know, not only of this book, but of their shared story. And I think both Peter and I did come away feeling uh, not only that Jim Baker never would have been uh, White House chief of staff or secretary of state, you know, had he not had this friendship uh, with Bush, but, you know, quite possibly Bush himself never would have been president if not for Jim Baker, that their stories are, are intertwined to a degree that is really remarkable uh, in, in, in any figure in public life. And, uh, you know, you're right that Baker at points had described his relationship with Bush as that of a, a brother, initially that of an elder brother to a younger brother. I think it's important for people to remember that, you know, Bush was kind of dazzling was the word that, that Baker used when he first met him. You know, he was a little bit older. He had been a hero in World War II and naval, the youngest or one of the youngest naval aviators. Baker was too young to serve in that conflict. So, you know, there's an initial power imbalance, right, in that relationship. Uh, but like any two people, uh, uh, siblings or cousins in a family business, ultimately, right, they get into business together, the business of national politics, uh, there's going to be friction is in part, especially because that relationship mattered so much to each of them, right? So that actually made them, it was harder for Baker, certainly, to confront George Herbert Walker Bush because of that relationship at times. And, you know, there's this amazing story uh, in the book uh, uh, during the 19... 80 presidential campaign that Baker's running uh, and he has to deal with like annoying, you know, family members fundraising and uh, a very close advisor uh, to Bush, Jennifer Fitzgerald, a name some of you will be familiar with, really got on the wrong side of Jim Baker. And he was furious. He felt that she was blocking his access to the candidate, which is unacceptable if you're the 
campaign manager, uh, you know, that she was uh, actually playing a substantive role when she shouldn't. Baker couldn't bear to confront her uh, personally or uh, Bush personally about it and actually asked his wife uh, to do so and to, to call up uh, George Bush and tell him, we're going to lose your campaign manager, Jim Baker, who, of course, is standing there in the kitchen listening to his wife say this. Uh, to me, that's a remarkable story that tells you uh, how fraught this relationship could be. But you know, 1992 was definitely the worst moment, of course, when, when George Bush lost re-election and Baker had been very reluctantly called back from the State Department to run the losing campaign. Barbara Bush in particular was very angry uh, with uh, Baker and felt that he had been the invisible man somehow and hadn't done enough. So that, of course, uh, was a low point for Bush and it was a low point in their relationship. Well, I think that election showed how much uh, George H.W. Bush depended on Baker because the campaign was definitely in total shambles. And here was Baker enjoying being secretary of state. And then all of a sudden he's run all these campaigns before. And now he's got it. And he realized this thing's a train wreck. Right. Uh, I mean, it wasn't savable, uh, probably. I mean, unless you did. I, I think that's a good point. I, I, look, people who were there at the time say, even when Baker showed up belatedly, you could see the difference. There was suddenly a better run ship, that they had more organization, more discipline, all these things. But you're right. By the time he comes, the, a lot of the dynamics are set, right? Uh, Bill Clinton is on the ascent. Ross Perot is out there, you know, sucking away attention and votes. Uh, Bush had he had some health problems. His, his uh, thyroid thing, I think, had sapped his energy. And he was on the wrong side of history in the sense that he was running as a foreign policy president at a moment when foreign policy seemed to be in the rearview mirror. And the domestic you know, uh, economic issues were front and center that wouldn't hurt, weren't really his strong point. And it had been 12 years of Republican straight rule. Remember, basically, with the exception of, of Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman, it had been more than a century since, uh, you know, it's been a century basically now since you had 12 years of one party in charge in, in Washington. So there was a certain exhaustion factor and Baker points to that. But I think you're right. Had Baker come in earlier, he might've been able to figure it out. It, had he been more engaged, perhaps he might've been able to figure it out. There was a sense of the, this aura around him that was you know, signaled winner. And I think that's why they wanted him so badly on that campaign. Even though the country was more focused on the domestic side than the foreign policy in 92, uh, history looks back on the foreign policy of the Bush-Baker years as being maybe the best uh, or among the best of the last century anyway. And so let's talk about that. During the Bush 41 presidency, uh, as far as foreign policy was concerned, we had President Bush, who was extremely experienced in foreign affairs. He'd been the ambassador to the UN, the U.S. ambassador to China, director of the CIA, and the vice president. We also had Brent Scowcroft, a very experienced, highly regarded diplomat who was national security advisor. And then we had James Baker, secretary of state, who lacked uh, much. <laughs> he had some, but he lacked a whole a significant foreign policy experience, except as Reagan's chief of staff and even during his secretary of the treasury year. So what's your assessment as to how Baker could hold his own with Bush and Scowcroft, despite his not having had near as much foreign policy and diplomatic experience as compared to the president and the national security advisor? Well, that's a great question, actually. Uh, I think people, because by that point in time, you know, by the time uh, he becomes Secretary of State, you know, 1989, uh, he's already been at the heights of Washington, you know, for a decade. And he was such a dominant figure, in fact, that it never came up. You know, not only was he overwhelmingly confirmed, uh, but, you know, people didn't mention that he didn't speak a foreign language. This is a Secretary of State who's never even been to Moscow uh, at this moment in time when the, the unraveling of the Soviet empire and the Soviet Union itself soon uh, was the dominant foreign policy issue. He didn't have a background as a Sovietologist. Uh, you know, he, he, he wasn't going to talk to you about the Treaty of Westphalia. Uh, you know, he wasn't going to be that kind of Secretary of State, and yet nobody brought it up. He was just that slam dunk. Why is that? Well, I would say a couple things. One, he, he had been essentially uh, uh, completely immersed uh, at the highest possible level uh, in the entire Reagan presidency. So he was, in fact, completely familiar uh, with uh, where the U.S. was in, in the world vis-a-vis, -vis especially the Soviet Union, right? You know, this was, uh, in fact, he had contemplated and tried to engineer a job swatch 
job switch two years into the Reagan presidency where he would have become national security advisor. So he, he clearly had a longstanding interest uh, in this kind of international diplomacy. He brought those corporate lawyer skills uh, and those negotiating skills to the table, which tended to substitute for his kind of subject area expertise. Uh, what his expertise was in at this point was in negotiating uh, and in finding out what someone at the other side of the table uh, wanted and needed from him. And then the other part of his expertise was actually probably the most detailed understanding and feel, intuitive feel, for uh, the Congress of the United States and what it needed uh, and what the politics of a given issue were at that moment. when they And they mattered still uh, in terms of foreign policy. Remember all those deals that Peter talked about, negotiating tax reform, social security. He, he just had an, an in-depth understanding of where American politics were. And then of course the support of his president. So it was more about the assets I think that he brought to the world stage in many ways. All right, I'm gonna ask you some a series of hypothetical questions. It's all the same question, but it's about different people. And I'm going to take it one Republican president at a time. I want you to assume you're, you're that president and assume that you're being in a mode of you're fully transparent and totally honest. First, Richard Nixon, who was trying to offer foreign policy advice to Presidents Reagan and Bush 41, throughout Baker's time in office. So if you got Nixon away from the media, maybe gave him a drink or two and ask him, what's your assessment of James Baker? How would he answer that question? Well, he is a good question. He was, uh, uh, you're gonna do all this, right? Okay, well, I'll do, I'll do Nixon. Nixon is an easier I'll one, Nixon. actually. Yeah, Nixon actually, um, he was not a fan of Jim Baker. Uh, he thought Baker was, uh, you know, again, out for himself. He thought he was a climber. He thought he didn't really know anything. He didn't think he was worthy of the job. You know, Nixon, of course, had this inflated view of his own uh, success as a foreign policy president with some reason. Obviously, he did a lot of important things. And therefore, anybody else who came along afterwards couldn't possibly be as good as him uh, or, or Kissinger. And so I think he looked down on Baker. He thought that Baker was uh, too big for his britches. And he told a lot of this to Monica Crowley who was his uh, foreign policy aide at the time. Today, of course, we know her. Uh, she's in the Trump administration as the uh, Treasury Department spokesman, but has also been on Fox News a lot. She wrote a book about this, in fact. She wrote a book about Nixon in winter, and she recounts all these days when Nixon would kind of come into the office or she would show up at his home or whatever, and he would just be railing about Baker this and Baker that. I think that Nixon had a little more respect for Bush, and so it was a way, by going after Baker, it was a way of going after Bush to some extent uh, without saying so. But, you know, in the end, I think success matters. And I think that Baker, you know, did things that Nixon didn't think he could do. Mm -hmm. All right, next, uh, Nixon's successor, Gerald Ford, who James Baker served as Undersecretary of Commerce and then in the 76 campaign was his chief uh, delegate counter and then became his campaign manager. Uh, if I said, President Ford, what's your assessment of James Baker? Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, James Baker earned the nickname the Miracle Man uh, for helping Jerry Ford to pull out uh, a victory on in the contested floor fight in the 1976 Republican convention. That, of course, really made Jim Baker's career. Uh, now, it might not have been uh, Ford personally who plucked uh, Baker out of the, the Commerce Department and the relative obscurity of his political appointment there to come have this central role for the White House. It was really probably a, a, a young deputy chief of staff known as Dick Cheney. Uh, and in many ways, actually, uh, Baker was a creature uh, uh, and a creation of the Ford administration, the opportunities that a new generation of Republicans had to rise quickly in public life because Watergate and Nixon had been such a devastating, like, you know, a neutron bomb that took out, uh, you know, the uh, whole generation of Republican operatives. So, you know, Baker is fundamentally a Ford person uh, in, in, in American politics, even though it's often kind of forgotten. Jerry Ford would have said, wow, that guy is hyper competent. He wasn't afraid, even though he was a relative nobody from the Commerce Department. One of the first meetings, we recount this in the book, uh, that where Baker is face to face with the president of the United States. He's telling him, sir, I think you're going to lose 
the Texas primary. Uh, and, you know, you really shouldn't be sending Henry Kissinger out there. Now, that takes some real chutzpah to uh, be like an obscure official in the Commerce Department and telling the incumbent president of the United States, first of all, taking on Kissinger uh, to go to the Nixon question, uh, but doing it to the president's face. Uh, and by the way, uh, he didn't stop Kissinger, he did not win that discussion with Ford, but uh, Ford did lose the Texas primary. And I imagine that he remembered uh, that this uh, young lawyer from Texas had told him that he was going to. Next, obviously, is President Reagan. Of course, uh, Baker started out in the 1980 campaign running George Bush's campaign against Reagan, but then uh, they kissed and made up after uh, Reagan got the nomination. He prepared him for his debates with Carter's and then, of course, spent eight years. So we get Ronald Reagan. Uh, what's your ultimate assessment of James Baker? I think Ronald Reagan had a, I think Ronald Reagan had a, a good impression of, of James Baker. Look, I think it speaks uh, a lot about Reagan that he would make Baker's chief of staff in the first place for reasons you just said, because Baker had been on the other side. And again, not once, but twice. And yet Reagan realized that Baker had a talent that he needed, that he needed somebody like a Baker to implement his vision, not somebody like an Ed Meese, who he obviously uh, respected and admired, but realized was not a manager, not didn't know Washington, and was better su uh, suited to keeping the ideological flame in a different position. Baker, I mean, Reagan was more of a pragmatist than people understood. And I think he saw in Baker somebody who could translate his vision into reality in a lot of ways. In fact, there's one moment, you know, two moments, actually, I would tell you about real quickly. People always went after Baker. How come you're not letting Reagan be like Reagan? In some ways, they went after ba uh, uh, Baker, and Richard Vigory told us this during the book. We went after Baker because we couldn't go after Reagan. Uh, you know, you, it was, you, Reagan was too much. You couldn't go after him, so you blame Baker for the things you didn't think Reagan should have done. Uh, but at, in the end, when Baker went, went over to the Treasury Department, uh, or sorry, left the Treasury Department to go work for Bush's campaign in 1988, Reagan gets together with him in the briefing room in front of the reporters and says, Jim, you are a true Reaganite. And that was sort of, I think, a big moment for Baker because that had always been so suspect. Mm -hmm. Now, we talked previously about uh, his relationship with Bush 41, but let's move on to President George W. Bush, who obviously grew up with Baker as kind of Uncle Jim and, and knew him well. And then, of course, uh, he called on Baker to be the head coach of his legal team in, in Bush versus Gore. Uh, President George W. Bush, what's your assessment of James Baker? <laughs> You know, look, I, I suspect that what he thought was that he was uh, the most uh, talented and formidable of his father's advisors and uh, that, you know, he had kept, uh, in fact, Baker at really at arm's length during that 19, during that 2000 campaign, uh, in part because he wanted to be seen as his own man and, you know, as the Texas governor and uh, a political actor in his own right and not simply uh, a repeat uh, or revenge play, you know, from his father's administration. So Baker, you know, and there had also been, as I mentioned before, the, the hard feelings from the uh, 1992 campaign to a certain extent. But it tells you everything you need to know, right, that when he's really in trouble and the entire presidency is on the line, there's only one phone call and no debate about it. That phone call goes immediately uh, in the morning hours uh, to Jim Baker when it's clear that Florida is going to end up being a contested uh, part of the election. And I, I just, I think George W. Bush would have thought of him as hyper-competent, uh, absolutely loyal to the family. And in fact, for example, when you flash forward to the decision to go to war in Iraq and uh, something that Baker actually was very skeptical about in, in very similar ways to Brent Scowcroft, uh, President George H.W. Bush's national security advisor. But Scowcroft writes an op-ed that infuriates George W. Bush and infuriates those around him. And there's a real rift and a real break with Scowcroft. Uh, Baker manages to navigate this and to maintain, by the way, his, his skepticism about the war in Iraq and his concerns also about the mishandling and incompetence with which it was carried out. Uh, he, he clearly has those concerns throughout the Bush presidency and yet maintains a pipeline and a conversation with Bush throughout that. All right. And then last but not least, President Donald Trump. Uh, in, in the prologue section of the book, you talk about uh, Baker's private conversations where he's 
before the 2016 election where he's wrestling with himself about the prospect of, of voting for the Republican candidate despite all of his misgivings. Now that your book has come out and received so much publicity, presumably Donald Trump is aware of what uh, Baker says in those pages. So uh, President Trump, uh, what's your assessment of James Baker? <laughs> Well, loser, sad, uh, <laughs> sad. I think um, I think Trump looks at Baker as an exemplar of the establishment that he has come to destroy. In other words, if Trump is believes himself to be a disruptor of the system, uh, to be somebody who came to Washington from the outside to break up both parties in some ways, he took over one, and he's you know trying to crush the other then Baker represents the old party that he's trying to get rid of. Baker represents free trade, which, which Trump doesn't uh, agree with. Baker represents alliances, internationalism, and leadership in the world, and, and traditional Republican values, or at least values that were traditional for a generation or two. And Trump doesn't buy into those ideologically. And he also doesn't buy into Baker, I think, in terms of temperament and belief in politics. Baker spent a meeting with uh, Trump in 2016 and gave him a two-page memo saying, okay, you've now won the nomination. Here's some ideas about how you might run in the fall and be president. And they all basically amounted to be presidential, right? You know, be tolerant of other people, reach out to people other than your own supporters, women and 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 minorities and even establishment Republicans and don't, don't insult people by their racial categories, all these things. And Trump basically said, yeah, thanks very much and threw it in the circular file. So I think that Trump doesn't have a, a great respect for Baker the way everybody else does. Having said that, when he hired his last chief of staff, most recent chief of staff, Mark Meadows, he was quoted as telling his supporters, I want Mark Meadows to be my Jim Baker. So he does at least have a respect for Baker's capacity, even if he doesn't particularly uh, uh, like his politics or like his personality. All right, we're gonna um, start with some questions from the audience. Uh, going back to the uh, 2000 election, and George W. Bush calls on uh, Jim Baker to lead the legal team. And of course, uh, Al Gore had chosen uh, Warren Christopher. So he had two former Secretary of States uh, on opposite sides. Uh, how did that dynamic go uh, during the Bush versus Gore proceedings? Look, how 2020, but I have to tell you that uh, a number of people, when we you know said, said we were working on this Baker thing, said, yeah, as soon as we knew Baker was uh, going head to head with Christopher and these were Democrats, we had a sense that Baker would win. Um, you know, there's a great anecdote, you know, moment in the book where uh, Baker and Christopher are meeting for, their, for the first time. Uh, and, you know, Christopher, very careful, uh, uh, fastidious former Secretary of State, has cleared his schedule for the day. He is prepared, you know, a plan B, a negotiating plan C even uh, uh, to discuss with Baker. He thinks that there are two elder statesmen who are going to kind of settle this messy national uh, uh, problem. And Baker walks in there and he's like, essentially a lawyer representing a client. My guy won uh, and my job is to maintain the victory. So what on earth would we negotiate over? And you know, the meeting is over in 15 minutes instead of two hours. And I think that that really tells you a lot about their different approaches in that, that conflict. All right, uh, we have uh, some uh, participants who wanna know how influential was Secretary Baker over the internal Saudi energy uh, policy uh, during his uh, Washington run? Well, that's a great question. Obviously, uh, Baker and Bush, both oilmen, are both uh, tied to oil st uh, state business and interests in, in Texas, and I think had more of a sympathetic uh, ear for the Saudis and for the Arab states in the Middle, in the middle East than a lot of uh, uh, their compatriots did. Uh, I don't know how much, I don't, I don't have a lot of examples of, you know, him playing on the energy field, uh, specifically as Secretary of State, obviously he became pretty involved in it afterwards, working for Carlisle uh, Group, which was, you know, sent him overseas to, to you know, take advantage of his friendships and the door opening uh, skills he had in the Middle East following the Gulf War, when he basically made so many good friends among the uh, the Emiratis and the Kuwaitis and the Saudis. Uh, but I don't know that we, you know, the the, the his. He's real interested in, in, in the oil industry during his time in power that we document is talking about oil uh, tax provisions during the tax uh, rewrite in 1986, 1987, where he was perceived to be t protecting the industry somewhat, uh, even as other other you know special provisions were being uh, cut loose. 
Here's one that's tied to one of your prior answers about his ability to run Washington and, and be so influential uh, was his uh, gift for uh, making deals, which necessarily involved compromise and working across the aisle on a bipartisan basis. So on the one hand, you have all these people all over Washington who today will say, yeah, James Baker was the greatest. He did all those things. He made things work. And yet nobody seems to be embracing today. <laughs> no, we need to compromise if we're going to work things out. So, so give us as Washington insiders with all this deep, widespread appreciation for Baker, how come nobody today wants to do what he did? Well, that's right. They've, they've embraced uh, in both parties in different ways. Uh, they've embraced a politics of winning at the to the exclusion often of the politics of compromise. That tension, I should say, existed throughout Baker's tenure, of course. It was one of the reasons that he was looked upon as suspect by the Reaganite true believer types, uh, because they always feared that uh, his deal-making skills would lead him, uh, you know, to trade away something. And then in that, even in the context of uh, him being Secretary of State, there was enormous pressure from uh, hardliners and hawks back in Washington, inside the Pentagon and elsewhere, uh, to that, you know, a fear that Baker uh, and Bush would give away too much of the Soviet. So that's a, that's an eternal for anyone in Washington who's perceived as a deal maker. The difference, as Peter alluded to, is number one, there are structural shifts in the incentive structure in American politics where, uh, you know, at least in the past, uh, part of what uh, propelled Baker along and made him so successful was the sense that uh, you had to do something once you're elected in order to be reelected. Uh, you know, that, that for Ronald Reagan, uh, defeating Jimmy Carter couldn't just be followed by four years of bashing the Democrats, uh, but that had they not done anything uh, that they could point to, that he wouldn't be able to win re-election four years later. Now, uh, you know, we actually literally have a president who's running for re-election without a platform for the second term in office. Uh, so that tells you a lot about whether people think it's important or not to have a policy because the Republicans have decided not to actually have a platform for the first time in their history uh, as a national political party, right? Um, however, you look at the situation that we have today, and I do think that this sense of division is magnified, if anything, because of how politicians, again, often in both parties, uh, in different ways, have chosen to uh, emphasize uh, uh, that politics of division and to emphasize uh, what their own side agrees upon to differentiate. Because there are, if you can make a list of policy areas today uh, in which there is broad support, say, you know, 80% of the American public. And by the way, that actually included the coronavirus uh, at the very beginning this spring before uh, it became politicized. 80% of Americans uh, agreed that they should wear masks, for example, if public health advisors did. So, you know, part of it actually is the malign influence of the politicization as a conscious strategy by our political figures. Uh, I bet there's 80% of Americans who can agree on certain aspects of an infrastructure uh, bill. We've been waiting for four years on that. Uh, the COVID uh, relief package that has not been passed and that they've been talking about uh, since April. I, I, I actually believe that even with the structural problems today, that if a Jim Baker type person, you know, was uh, in the middle of these talks, I mean, Right. Like politicians actually generally like to give money away uh, to voters, especially in an election year. And it's kind of amazing that they haven't been able to find common ground, especially because their reported differences are, uh, you know, the Democrats were at two trillion dollars. Republicans were at one point eight trillion dollars. I think Jim Baker could find a way to, you know, like, what's the difference between two trillion and one point eight? Even I, I'm not good at math. Like, how about one point nine, guys? <laughs> uh you all obviously have a wonderful marriage to be able to work together as a bureau chiefs in Moscow for the Washington Post. And this is the second book that you've uh, collaborated on together. That's terrific. Uh, one of our participants is curious about your process. How do you decide who does what when you take on this kind of a project? Well, that's a great question. It, it kind of depends on the project, of course. Uh, but we do meet in the, in the newsroom of the Washington Post. So from the very beginning, we have been professional as well as personal partners, which makes it, I guess, a little easier. We aren't starting from scratch when we started this book. We've done it for our whole life, our whole marriage. And we've been married now 20 years as of about last month. Uh, our first book actually was harder because it was uh, we, we wrote it when Susan was pregnant and we were moving home from Moscow. So we were setting up a house. 
getting ready for a baby and writing a book. In fact, we, uh, Thomas, we may have even told this story, but we were uh, sending in the last two chapters of the book and I hit the done button. She says, good, I'm having contractions. And we actually <laughs> had our baby on the same day we turned in the book. So this book by comparison was kind of easy. Um, I think our process is basically, we just, you know, we always are passing things back and forth. Each of us takes on, you know, might interview different sources or do them together. We interviewed Secretary Baker as much as we could together. Uh, you know, she would she would send me a draft. I would make some rewrites or some suggestions, send it back. I mean, we're just, uh, it's just a constant flow, uh, you know, a 24-hour process of, 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 of collaboration, I would say. Uh, Howard Mudrick, who's a director of the chamber, uh, wants you to rank uh, Secretary Baker as Secretary of State versus the others, let's say just during the last 75 years or so. And, and also, what would, do you regard as his top three accomplishments? Well, it's a good question. Uh, you know, I think uh, it was Tom Donilon, uh, President Obama's national security advisor, who told us that he considered Baker to be the most important unelected official uh, in Washington since uh, the end of World War II or, you know, the beginning of the Cold War period. I think there's a general sense that that Baker and Kissinger uh, are certainly the most consequential uh, secretaries of state since the beginning of the Cold War and perhaps Dean Acheson and sort of the building of that, that Cold War uh, infrastructure, much of which, like NATO, survives to this day. Uh, you know, there's an interesting debate. Uh, you can make the argument that, that Baker, because of the moment he was secretary of state in, was even more consequential because it was the ending of the Cold War. They're very different uh, kinds of figures in terms of their diplomacy, right? Uh, you know, although they're both famous, uh, Kissinger and Baker, for having a sort of uh, very realistic view of the world uh, and, and fundamentally not being so much ideological as shaped uh, you know, by a pragmatic sense of American power and national interest. Uh, you know, Kissinger uh, is a, one of the foremost uh, academic international theorists of, of his era. Uh, and, you know, his views about uh, uh, nuclear deterrence and nuclear power in the 1960s, you know, shaped a generation of, of uh, nuclear strategists. And, uh, you know, his work on conceiving of the idea of a uh, uh, massive geopolitical shift in uh, the opening to China as a way of isolating the Soviets. That's not the kind of diplomacy that uh, was or even ever would have been the hallmark of Jim Baker, right? He was not the opposite of having an academic view of the world. However, arguably, his uh, the pinnacle of his diplomacy, you asked about his biggest successes, the pinnacle of his diplomacy undoubtedly was the intensive uh, personal diplomacy uh, involved in the reunification of Germany after that shocking uh, moment of the fall of the Berlin Wall in November of 1989. Uh, and I think that uh, showcases a, a, a brilliance of its own, a suppleness, uh, a ability to not only to create relationships and use them at such a moment, uh, but actually to be bold where the moment required. And you know, when you look at the obstacles lined up against him, both in terms of the chronology and the fact that it wasn't just the Soviets, but Margaret Thatcher and the French and even people back in Washington, you know, to me, that that really stands as a chapter that should be studied uh, by any future Secretary of State. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to uh, turn the program over to the Dale Petrosky, the president and CEO of the Dallas Chamber for uh, final thoughts. Dale, you may even have a question. I'll leave it up to you. <laughs> well, thank you, Talmadge. I have never heard two world-class journalists being interviewed say so many times, that is a great question. <laughs> <laughs> we like good questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got a lot of good questions today, Peter, Peter and Susan. I must tell you, I, um, I've, I love your work. You. I've admired both of you for many, many years. You. Love your work with The Times now and with New Yorker now and followed you when you're at The Washington Post. Um, I love this book. You know, I, I watch every World Series game, but I, I must tell you, I, I'm waiting for the last pitch so that I can get back to my book. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm getting to bed awfully late these days because of, of your book. I just, I love every minute of it. I've told Talmadge many times that I thought one of the great books that has not been written yet that needs to be written is the relationship between George H.W. Bush and James Baker, 
their friendship, their partnership, their brotherly love. Um, I didn't realize this is that book, but this book is so much more than that. Uh, it, you capture that, that, that is a book within this book, but the, the greater book is the book of James A. Baker's life. I'm going to tell you one little story because it talks to the brotherly love of James Baker and George H.W. Bush. I was in Washington about five years ago, and I was invited to a small breakfast at the Hay Adams, and there were going to be eight of us there. And two of the participants in that breakfast were going to be James Baker and President Bush. And so we were there early, and uh, we were waiting for them to arrive. They were staying at the Hay Adams, and out of the elevator comes President Bush being pushed in his wheelchair by James Baker. Mm -hmm. Beautiful moment to start with, uh, because here's this 85-year-old regal gentleman and James Baker pushing a former president of the United States, his best friend. Yeah. And they roll up to the table, and I get seated right next to Secretary Baker, and President Bush is right next to him. And at that moment, President Bush was less verbal. Uh, later in his years, as you know. And uh, Secretary Baker, he says, Jefe, he called him Jefe, as you know, which means chief in Spanish. Jefe, what are we going to have here this morning? And uh, President said, oh, I don't know, Jim, what do you think? And, uh, and Secretary Baker said, I think we'll have some eggs benedict. How's that sound? And, uh, and President, President Bush said, that sounds great, Jim. And it was, it was a beautiful moment of very artfully taking care of his friend and doing it in a, such a dignified way. And I never, ever forgot that. And I, I just loved Jim Baker and I, and, I, uh, and I love President Bush too. But uh, it was a beautiful moment of two men later in life who loved each other more than brothers love each other. And uh, it was a great, just a great moment. So thank you for capturing that in the book. And thank you for capturing, by the way, all the moments of, of tension and friction between them, because that's what made it all real. Yeah. You know? that's right. And I'll never forget at President Bush's funeral, um, just the, 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 how distraught Secretary Baker was, the tears just streaming down his face that he had lost his, his best friend. And uh, it was just a moment you don't see in political life or public life very often. So, right. so thank you. Thank you for your work. Really do appreciate that. Dale, thank you. And thank you for that great story. Yeah. yeah thank you so much. It's, uh, you know, I think you really nailed it. And we're, we're very grateful for, uh, for spending this time with everyone today. Peter Baker and Susan Glasser have written a biographical masterpiece on one of my personal heroes, James Baker. David Rubenstein told me he believes their book is worthy of a Pulitzer, and I agree with him. You can find Peter and Susan's new book wherever books are sold. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud, or you can find them on my website, TalmadgeBoston.com. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.